Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am one half of your uh, hosting duo, David Clement. Uh, EIL is off gallivanting uh, lakeside somewhere in the Austrian countryside, I believe. So I am joined today by my colleague, the always insightful Bill Wirtz. Bill, thank you for co-hosting with me today. Thank you for having me back after all the crazy things I've said in the past. <laughs> exactly. A controversial guest, William Wirtz. I, I aim to please. I aim to please. Uh, what's, been, what's been going on in, uh, in Canada, David? Oh, well, uh, a lot's been going on. Uh, a Chinese foreign interference scandal. Um, the major labor union for the Vancouver port. Uh, has been on strike and then not on strike and then on strike again and then not on strike. Uh, very French of them, I would say. I've been I've been getting into uh, Canadian politics a bit more. I know we we've chatted about this. I've started to listen to uh, some of the CBS podcasts. CBC, um, CBC. So C- CB- CBC, sorry, uh, CBC podcast. There, uh, one of them is called the Parliament. I also listen to At Issue. Uh, a couple of these, and uh, they're quite insightful. Of course, it you know they 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 demand a couple of knowledge, like a, a set of knowledge in advance, but um, but still quite interesting. And I think my my big takeaway is that um, if you're a politician and you want to govern like a major uh, Western nation, but you also want to be able to completely get away with things you couldn't get away with anywhere else in the world, Canada is definitely the place you should get into politics in. Oh, what makes you say that? I'm intrigued as a as an outsider. What makes you say that? I just, I mean, you know, I, I've seen, I, I follow European politics quite a bit on, on the podcast Consumer, which is spelled with EU, and you can follow on all the major podcast platforms. Um, a bit of a plug there. Uh, but, you know, I just feel like um, what goes as sort of a, anything to do with uh, uh, scandals over surveillance, uh, mismanagement of funding, uh, uh, proximity between charities and the government. I, we've had a lot of these things in, in Europe as well. And usually they're calls for dismissal of individual ministers or just for the, the collapse of the government usually pretty quickly. I think one of the factors, of course, is that, you know, in Europe, we often have coalition governments. And then, you know, one of the coalition partners feels disenfranchised and says, OK, I'm not doing this. But... But it seems that in Canada, maybe it's the political system, maybe it's the political culture. You know, the, the, the prime minister just gets away with a lot more things. And I was curious, like, whether you think this is true for the current ruling majority or whether this is something that has been sort of entrenched in Canadian politics? So, um, if a government has a majority government, then that is generally true. Uh, but ironically, the liberals are kind of working in partnership with the NDP, who I would kind of describe as European socialists. Um, so they actually have a minority government. So this government could fall at any moment, but the NDP does not seem to have any interest in forcing an election. Um, and I think that's probably because the polls show that their electoral gains, if there was an election right now, uh, wouldn't be very much. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of scandals that you w- one would think would 
um, end a, uh, a government and force another election. Uh, they haven't come to fruition, and the only thing I can do to explain it um, is it's like a creeping of U.S. politics and Trumpism, where the it, politics has become more tribal, and p hard partisans will do a lot of mental gymnastics to defend um, whoever their guy is. Uh, in the same way that Donald Trump had scandal after scandal after scandal. Uh, now, he ended up losing the election to Joe Biden, obviously, but um, in those four years, there were a lot of moments where observers were like, wow, he's really able to carry on and deflect from all of these issues. Um, the only difference is that the Liberal Party in our system has incredible voter efficiency, well, I'm not sure if that's a term you're familiar with, Bill, but uh, they have very good voter efficiency. Enlighten me on what that on what that means. So we have a first past the post system with multiple parties, um, and so the liberals do a particularly good job of winning ridings with 35, 38 percent of the vote. Uh, especially in the Toronto area, in the area outside of Vancouver, on the East Coast. And so they've lost, the Liberals have actually lost the popular vote um, the last two elections in terms of total number. And this is where the Conservatives have a problem. Is uh, So an example would be rural Alberta is always going to vote Conservative. Uh, but technically every vote over 50.1% percent really means nothing uh, in terms of how many seats they're getting because that's in one riding for one seat and so the liberals have done a particularly good job of carving out their voter base in a way that wins a lot of seats without blowing out the competition in each riding um, and the conservatives do not have very good voter efficiency because they have a lot of ridings where they'll win with 60, 70, 75% of the vote. And then there's a lot of ridings they lose with 34% of the vote, 35% of the vote. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting system and an interesting dynamic. I personally think that this is probably it for Justin Trudeau. Um, if I Certainly if I was an executive with the Liberal Party, I'd be trying to figure out who's next, who are we passing the torch to. Um, but then again, at the same time, all they really need is that 35, 36%, and they would form a minority government again. I know that, um, you know, sort of electoral systems reform has been a, a topic in, in, in many countries. I know in Europe, uh, the, uh, the French have been talking about this for a very long time because they have sort of a two-round system, which is not first past the post, but then you have these two rounds, and it has, like, for a very long time, it it always benefited the establishment candidates. And I know in the U.S. they talk a lot about um, sort of, you know, what should what, what should the system be? Not necessarily how you are elected, but then in what district, you know, and how can those districts change? Uh, are there people in Canada who think that, you know, there should be a major reform on how people get elected to parliament? So it's funny you should ask that, Bill. You have just opened up a very large can of Canadian worms here. Uh-oh. Um, in 2015... 
the golden boy himself, Justin Trudeau, um, whom I'm sure you're aware now is uh, the son of Canada's most famous um, prime minister. Um, I, I, if I were to think of a U.S. example for our U.S. Li- listeners, it would it, it would be like if uh, if Reagan had a son who was just kind of always like ordained to carry the torch for the Republicans at some point. Um, and in 2015, uh, then candidate Justin Trudeau said that in quotes, "This election will be the last." quote, unfair election, uh, and that we would be moving to a proportional represent, representation uh, system, um, mm. a campaign promise that rallied a lot of young people um, that they completely backtracked on, like 100% backtracked on. They've made no changes um, to the way in which we elect um, anyone. Um, and it's, it doesn't get enough attention. Uh, the conservatives were always opposed to that change uh, because in the current landscape, it would more or less mean a left-leaning government indefinitely, uh, a coalition between the liberals and the NDP. Um, but then ironically, at the same time, they're the party who have won the most votes as a percentage the last two goes around and they will likely win the most amount of votes um, whenever that next election is. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a huge promise that was just never followed through on. And for me, there's just not enough. It's just weird that that doesn't come up all the time. Here's my hot take on on sort of the proportional system. Actually, what the proportional system does, it it increases the amount of political parties that is available to choose from, right? Because now you can just be the small animal rights group party and you can get into into parliament even if it's just with one seat. I mean, this is the reason why in the European Parliament you have satirical parties you know people who are you know there, there's this german guy and he, he he ran a satirical newspaper and he was elected to the european parliament uh with just just him by himself and he he's just making a joke out of it right and that's possible in a proportional system what it actually does though it actually incentivizes less of political party participation because when you have only a handful of large political parties and i mean in the us you re- only really have two uh, you know political parties with any type of uh, influence um you have all these factions within those parties, right? I mean, when you when you talk about Repub- the Republican Party in the U.S., you have California Republicans and you have Florida Republicans. You have different supporters of different candidates. You have a massive primary system where people sort of determine the future of that party fighting between those factions. In a proportional system, you end up, I mean, if you look at just like a country like the Netherlands, which will have elections this year, uh, like 13, 14, 15 different political parties. But within those parties, there's very little disagreement. And once you're in, you're just pulling for the same candidate because you're already too small to be able to have that type of infighting. And they tell you, well, if you don't like, the, if you don't like this party, there's another one to choose from, right? So sort of the, the individual members are just sort of pawns for campaigning and handing out leaflets. While in systems that are not proportional, the members of that political party pull in each and every direction to try and influence 
sort of the, the overall politics because their party might get into government and actually, you know, make all the decisions by themselves. So as sort of individual party members are a lot more influential in a non-proportional system, a first-past-the-post system, than they are in sort of what a lot of European countries already practice. And I, I, I have a hot take for you in regards to European politics. Um, my anecdotal evidence, uh, and I've had this conversation with some Canadians, the backstory here is that a couple conservative members of parliament had a meeting with Christine Anderson, the, uh, the German woman, um, whom I, I assume maybe you know of. Um, I, I would probably describe her as far right, is maybe too generous, given her ideological leanings. Uh, I, I, I would use another word um, to describe that particular uh, person. Uh, very anti-immigrant, etc., very anti-Islam, uncomfortable um, from a parliamentarian. But at least anecdotally, my view is that the European system produces more crazies than the Canadian system on both sides, where you'll have like the very, very far fringes of the right who would say things that would make you unelectable in Canada, and then you also have people on the far, 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 far left um, who say things that would make you unelectable in Canada. Um, is Do you think that that's a, an accurate assessment? I mean, if you look at American politics, it, it doesn't it doesn't really hold up. That I mean, you you do get people with all types of uh, uh, strong views. I think it's but sort of a political will. culture. But will William <laughs> will the uh, the systems are different because our system is more whipped. So members of parliament in Canada, I think the ratio is probably like ninety five, ninety six, ninety eight percent of the time vote with their party. And if they don't, the party kicks them out, and you can't really win as an independent because you can't raise money. Um, so the systems are far more whipped, which is why um, it, the difference between Canada and the United States, you can get a Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in the United States who's a Looney Tune. Um, you can't really have that in Canada to the same extent because if the party removes you from the party you're then an independent and you don't have any of the infrastructure to raise money prior to an election and with one exception independents always lose um, so it's, I, it, that would be the one difference between Canada and the US It, it, so, you know, even in systems that are heavily whipped and, and you know, have the, these, these tendencies of like, trying to suppress people that are a bit more on the, on the fringe side, it always depends on the political culture still, uh, because like how long are people going to accept to be put on the fringe, right? And I think, and I think that's relevant here uh, to, to, to see. Um, and then, you know, I mean, in France, after 1958, there had just been two political parties and then Macron came and upended that whole system and now it's all over the place, even though the constitution didn't change and the voting system didn't change. So a lot of things can happen. Interesting, interesting. So as a, as a newcomer to the world of Canadian politics, um, what other interesting observations do you have 
because it's I mean yeah Canada is a is a G7 country and it it certainly uh, fights above its weight class economically because we're a country of only 40 million um, but yeah what are some interesting observations as a person from the old world I think on the politics side I think the the first thing that you end up watching is um is parliament itself because that's I mean that that produces a lot of good clips and you know people people will know sort of the house of commons debates in uh in the UK which are very entertaining and then think okay let's go to the canadian one and see if it's if it's similar and what is so interesting is like that it's it, it I mean I I've never been to Canada uh, I have to admit to to the audience here but I um I feel like those debates are very Canadian still. Um, it's the, the the choice of words, the the posturing, right? The getting up and clapping, which is just so strange. And you know, in most parliaments in the world, there is no clapping happening. Um, it's 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 a lot of posturing. It's a lot of um, zingers that in in the US would be considered lame, but in Canada are very ouch moments in politics. It's everything is a lot nicer. Um, uh, and 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 then will be will be u- reused as clips. It's it's sort of that the hostility in politics that a lot of people talk about in Europe, in the US. It it tries to reach Canada, but it cannot overcome the very Canadianness of the members. Like what is considered rude wouldn't be rude in in most parliaments in the world. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, I always find question period. And the clips from it so irritating because there's nothing like obliging the person being asked the question to actually answer it unless the speaker like doubles down and intervenes to require them to answer it which they very rarely do and so you'll have questions like Pierre Polyev the conservative leader does this all the time where he'll be like uh, Minister Freeland how much has um has the interest uh, on Canadian debt, those payments gone up as the Bank of Canada's hiked interest rates. And then she talks about our credit rating and our debt ratio in comparison to other G7 countries and our inflation rate. She doesn't answer the question. He asks it again. She doesn't answer. He asks it again. She doesn't answer. And it's like, I wish there was some accountability function where the speaker would have to intervene and be like, Minister Freeland, you either have to answer the question or decline to answer the question, but you're not answering the question. Uh, I think in any I think in any case, though, it is it's a testimony to a better system that at least the person who's the uh, the, the the most important decision maker in, in in your case, the prime minister, is actually being questioned, and then the fact that he doesn't want to answer a question is at least on public display contrary to a system that you have in France um, uh, where the president never goes to parliament or in the US where the president doesn't answer to to Congress doesn't get questioned by members of Congress or in Germany where the chancellor will appear but then won't take any questions I think at least it puts it on the spot and I think that's sort of the the commons system that you have inherited from from the UK where you have to at least face the the hard decision to make as to you know if you if you don't answer the question multiple times it'll end up on youtube it'll end up on social media that you were unwilling to answer and at least being put on the spot is the important part here as as a starter yeah yeah i guess that's 
even if it is a show, the show is better than no show. Like the like minuscule amounts of accountability are better than none. Uh, I, that would be a good dis- difference between like imagine if Joe Biden had to stand before Congress and get grilled. I mean, he doesn't even stand before the press, right? I mean, he 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 rarely ever answers questions. You always have a press secretary that that answers these these questions. Like it's, I mean, to the extent that it's even hard to know whether Joe Biden is aware of the criticism of him. While I mean, I'm pretty certain that Justin Trudeau, even if he doesn't want to address it, is definitely aware of the criticism because he hears it firsthand. And I think that's his level of confidence you know that 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 people can have in canada that you know americans won't be able to have you know what i would love i would love i'd love to see a skit um i'd love to see a skit where uh, someone hires a press secretary but just for like their ordinary day-to-day life like your wife's (laughs) like honey when are you going to mow the lawn and like before he answers the press secretary steps up in a suit and like well Lawn care is very important. We we really prioritize, you know, making sure that the appearance of the lawn is is up to a certain standard, how we <laughs> position ourselves in this neighborhood, and we're just we're just reinforcing our commitment to that standard, and just like only those type of political answers, but like in a marriage. I'd love that. I think I, that I think a, if your wife was like, David, why didn't you do the dishes? It's like, I am currently recording and I'm speaking to all Canadians and will continue to speak to all Canadians in the interest of our country. <laughs> Just keep saying that. Five probably, get, probably give some speech about water management and conservation <laughs> of water. Um, oh, that would be sad. That, that's, that would be a great comedy skit. It's like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, SNL. you could even... Yeah, or you could even just remove it. You could make a Canadian example. It'd be like if all answers were if if you answered your wife like Justin Trudeau answers questions, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it be must be really clear. awkward, right? I, like, I, I, I think it's so, and I think that's why it's so interesting, also in, in in U.S. politics, when these candidates now go on podcast because they sort of the podcast like questioning that happens is so different to sort of the tv five minute segments and i it's just like why has nobody ever asked justin trudeau is like isn't it it must be really awkward to not answer the question like like answer a question you haven't been asked and just rattle off the same statement it, like, it must be, like somebody must have addressed this before with him like don't you feel like doesn't it feel a bit stupid to a bit silly to to go like to do this charade to do this theater um, well, yeah. that that would be my. I mean, the best description I've heard of our current government is that it is a marketing agency running a G seven economy. And so that is good. All that matters is winning the news cycle and the perception, um, and anything that eats into that perception really matters. Um, anything that they can dodge that's not going to eat into that perception then the perception is the reality, and that's how they sell themselves. They've done a very good job at it. I mean, you could probably write a book um, at how they've been able to weasel out of scandals and navigate through some really uncomfortable things. Um, 
but yeah, it's a, a marketing agency running a G7 country is, I think, the uh, the most devastatingly accurate description. Hey, they might run that even just uh, they might they might run that for themselves. That, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> With the best agency see, you can hire. Yeah, let's see how this message tests. Let's get the uh, the over fifty demographic in a room and see how it's out. Oh, it's good. Okay, we're good. Did you ever Did you ever see um, when Jen Psaki uh, moved to MSNBC? Did you ever Did you ever, when, uh, So Trevor Noah was at the White House correspondent. I think Trevor Noah is like structurally unfunny, but he had good writers for that for that dinner because he said. Uh, it's going to be quite a move for you, Jen Psaki, because you now you were press secretary for Joe Biden, so you had to say all these positive things and defy, um, uh, defend the Biden administration at all costs. And now you will move to MSNBC, where you will... Oh, never mind. You'll be fine, actually. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's, uh... That is good. We, we have our own version of um, that type of dinner. Um and it used to be quite a show and quite funny in fact the leader of <laughs> this is back when harper was prime minister the leader of the green party the only green in parliament at the time um got on stage to like do her roast and like make jokes and she started going on about um this guantanamo detainee who she was a hammered drunk going on about this Guantanamo detainee and how he had more courage than than the Prime Minister at the time and one of the other MPs who's not a Green had to go up on stage and be like okay Elizabeth, Lizzie, come on that's enough, you're embarrassing yourself (laughs) ouch Uh, oh this is unfortunate but but you you folks um, both in Luxembourg and in Europe have had a uh, a long history of political leaders whom at various public moments have uh, appeared very intoxicated. If I uh, remember correctly, there's a couple uh, funny ones of <laughs> former uh, former very important people um, maybe in partaking in the alcohol uh, alcoholic beverages a little too much for a public gathering. I mean, we had so so Jean Claude Juncker was prime minister in Luxembourg for about eighteen years, and I've interviewed Jean Claude Juncker, and I mean, I have to say, I've never voted for Jean Claude Juncker. I never would, um, but I think he's just a very funny man, and like his cynicism and his sense of humor is great, which of course is just reinforced when he's had a couple of drinks, and there's this there's this you know, people can look this up. There's this great moment. From um, I don't know what year this is. This is a couple of years ago. He's uh, receiving the different prime ministers and presidents of the of the European Union, and they show up and they do like this handshake move where the cameras are rolling, and then um, he is just very touchy with them. He kisses the council president on his forehead. You know the man's bald, so this is just very inappropriate. And he slaps the foreign minister of Luxembourg in the face, but just so lightly. So it's just, it seems like it seems like it's like a thing they do. But then we realize it's not a thing that you know he just does only with people he's friendly to, uh, because Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, 
who's a who's a, who's an autocrat uh, uh you know and that's putting it mildly shows up and jean claude juncker goes oh the dictator and then slaps him right in the face um and then and then shakes his hand and it's been it's been one of his iconic moments um I think I mean I think he I think he knew he was just going to be a one-term commission president and he just really couldn't care just didn't care. I mean it's like he had done he had spent so much time in politics and he just couldn't put up with all the masquerading for the cameras. Somewhat similar. I think it's in either Australia or New Zealand and it's a, a gentleman who had quit drinking and then the election happened and he had won and he had like his election party on a yacht or something. And the news crew is off the yacht, and he comes off the yacht, and he's clearly, like, stumbling. And the, the news crew's like, oh, like, you've, you, you've just won, but you appear to be quite intoxicated. You said you, that you quit drinking. And his response was, I never said I would quit drinking after winning an election and being on a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta specify. You have, you have to specify, and I mean, like, yeah, it's uh, it's imitating the the all time great Boris Yeltsin, who uh, who probably was was drunk more often than uh, than sober. So I guess from Yeltsin, compared to Yeltsin, all of them are fine. All of them, all of them are. I mean, they're they're so sober they they're almost abiding by Health Canada's uh, prescriptions for alcohol consumption. Uh, we have about a minute a minute here, uh, but there's someone who took the old transcripts of uh, our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. And reenacted them because the word on the street was that he was a heavy drinker. And when you see someone reenact his words, you're like, whoa, this progressively gets more incoherent as Parliament's sitting. <laughs> He's probably just sitting there with a scotch, and then that scotch turns into like eight scotches. The next thing you know, he's like slurring his words and his sentences are incomplete. Wait, is that where Joe Biden copies his speeches? <laughs> that might be it. Well, yeah, we'll have to leave it on that note, Bill. That is fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for uh, joining me. Uh, stay tuned after the break where we'll be going to an interview. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am joined by Anthony Koch. Um, we were just talking before the break about... The, the parallels between the kind of really diehard liberal partisans and, and the MAGA crowd. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but we do have to pay the bills. Um, so the floor is yours. Yeah, no. So I'm saying I think this is like sort of the this negative partisanship. I'm not the first person to talk about it. Many other people have spoken about it as well. But this idea that, you know, people are every bit as much motivated, in many cases even more so, uh, by hatred or of the other side more than they are love of their own. So I'm saying, you know, sort of saying before, there's obviously people who genuinely love the Liberal Party of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and support his political agenda and, you know, uh, are considered ideological bedfellows. And there's obviously people who really like Donald Trump and supported the Republican Party under his presidency and liked a lot of the policy initiatives that he was implementing. But when it comes to this double standard, I guess, that we observe from a lot of these people in terms of slamming the other side for conduct that they then excuse when it's exhibited in very much similar ways on their own side is because their belief that the other side's so god awful and horrible and bad that you know when they weigh when they weigh the sort of moral probabilities of these behavior they say oh well you know what i'm willing to look the other way on this sort of thing right we've we've basically lost the ability to say some things are wrong full stop no matter who does them and mm-hmm. there should be consequences 
voices for it, regardless of whether it's team blue or team red in the American or the Canadian context, right? And people often ask me this, and I'll tell you flat out, if I ever happen to be a senior staff or a member of a government where this sort of situation unfolded, even if it happened to conservatives, and there was this clearly concerted effort to make this go away or to cover it up, I would resign and refuse to be a part of it. I think it's unforgivable. Yeah. You know what? I hope people like you hold me to this one day if I'm ever in that position. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat where I look yeah. at this and it's like how how we like uh, there's a lot of levels there, but it's like how how desperate are you to stay in whatever that role is that you have that you just throw any um any regard for your apparent morals or beliefs or principles out the window and i know that politics is about bending and compromise but this is where we cross the line of compromise into hypocrisy yeah precisely and i think what we're discovering is a lot of people right what's what's this old saying even for public polling you've got revealed preferences right and shallow intentions Mm -hmm. and the fact of the matter is a lot of people love to talk a very big game but all the morals and principles that they hold dear and they'll tear their shirt off on television or on Twitter, scream bloody murder and, you know, feign outrage when the opposite side does something that they claim violates their moral principles. But then all of a sudden, magically, uh, that line disappears, right? And as my father always told me, <laughs> a principle that you abandon at the first difficulty is no principle at all. And yeah. uh, I happen to agree with that wholeheartedly. So I, I don't, unfortunately, I'm not convinced this is going to get better anytime soon. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's going to get better. And I would love to see, I mean, if I'm a reporter and, 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 um, and the member of parliament who we mentioned, Dong, um, says, you know what, I investigated and I didn't do anything. This may be a bit of a, a cheap shot or an unfair question, but there are questions you can ask to parse out what that person actually thinks about what's going on in the world. Yep. What is his opinion about how the Uyghurs are treated? Does he have one? I'd love to know that. Um, the same goes for Michael Chan, the um, former provincial politician in Ontario, who's now the deputy mayor and regional councillor in Markham. What are your opinions? And we know some of his, they're rather uncomfortable. Um, and that starts to shed some light as to maybe they have no knowledge of interference but it does beg the question of why a foreign government would interfere on their behalf and that's the second part of the conversation that is often missing is right now we're talking about threats to democracy but the big question is well why would they want him to win is it because he has in my opinion backwards views about the protests in hong kong um, now some would probably think those are cheap shot questions. I'm not sure if you agree or not. Um, but it is a very good way, in my opinion, of parsing out where they stand. Absolutely. And that's the point. And, and these questions are often purposely avoided. And to the extent that when journalists do actually ask them, right, the first defense, and this is what I said, Canada needs to mature as a country. The first time, you know, you were to ask a question to that, to a guy like Michael Chan, not because he's Chinese or because he's a Chinese origin, but because he's expressed opinions to this effect in the past, mm-hmm. they would just throw their hands up, scream bloody murder, and say, this is anti-Asian hate. This is anti-Chinese racism. And the conversation would stop there. 
And I know that, for example, because Michael Chen, I think it was yesterday, actually put out a statement, wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau saying, we need to have a public inquiry. Yes, but not in this issue. We need to have a public inquiry into how racist CSIS is and why they're targeting Chinese Canadians. This was this was his contribution to the conversation yesterday. So, um, no, I I think, like I said, this is the it's not going to go away. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But Canada and Canadians writ large need to come to some sort of place politically, spiritually, and culturally where we're able to have these really difficult conversations and ask these really tough questions without it devolving into racism while also not allowing people for nefarious purposes to use genuine concerns about racism as a smokescreen to cover up garbage like what we're seeing in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I want to chat with you quick on the CSIS side of the question, because obviously that's a huge part of the equation here. A lot of people are very concerned about the leaks um, and, and their veracity. To me, it seems a bit like an inverse Snowden. Snowden yeah. goes to the press because of what the government is doing. Whomever this person or people are at CSIS are going to the press because of what the government is not doing. Um, how serious do you see these leaks in terms of um, threatening national security or any of the other security concerns that may come up if intelligence information is being leaked to the press like this? Well, I don't know your perspective on this, David, but I know from I tend to, in general, lean on the side of whistleblowers. That's my mm-hmm. my sort of predisposition. I don't see how any of this. I you know, if we want to talk about the the concept of leaks generally, that's one thing. But I think the leaks that have come out specifically in this circumstance, I don't understand how they in any way, shape, or form compromise national security. I, I don't know. I I I I I you know, I've heard that argument a lot, but like this was not disclosure of you know secret facilities or of the location of Canadian troops abroad or it was none of that. It was basically, here are these things that we found that we reported to the prime minister that we've encouraged him to speak out about that we think is the Canadians should know about. And for whatever reason, he continues to cover this up, hide it and not talk about it publicly. And the fact that these people are risking, by the way, I want this to be clear to everybody. If, if, if they find out who these people are, they run the risk of not only losing their job, but potentially serving up to 14 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Right, like not the kind of thing you do that for something that you think is relevant, small or not important. These are people that are are putting themselves on the line in a pretty major way to get this out. Um, and uh, I I don't think I think that's I would call it the political equivalent of gaslighting to try and suggest that the real issue here is that we've got these super scary deep state actors. Like it's again very Trump, very <laughs> yeah. Trumpian. These super scary deep state actors that are trying to take down the sitting prime minister for partisan purposes. Give me a break. Well, and this is the thing. We don't have many references to leakers in Canada as as they do in the United States. But my response always has been when, when folks are like, oh, obviously someone at CSIS has a grudge against the prime minister. And it's like, well, if you look at any of the famous leakers and what happened to them, uh, Bill Binney with the NSA, Thomas Drake, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning. I mean, all of their lives were destroyed. Chelsea Manning almost died. Um, That is, to some extent, what this individual or these individuals are are potentially risking um, by doing this. And so you have to ask, is someone really going to put everything they have on the line because they don't like the prime minister? 
or does it come from a different place where maybe they're genuinely concerned at the threats to Canadian democracy and the role that the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to play in it? Exactly. And I think you even see like there was one of the things that hasn't been covered too, too much. Some people have mentioned it, but, you know, originally the prime minister was claiming that he was never briefed on any of this. Mm -hmm. Never heard. He feigned ignorance. I, I didn't know anything. You know, all we had heard was we had this special panel of people and, you know, Elections Canada guaranteed us that, uh, you know, our elections were had integrity of the highest order, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out, right, you know, in committee a couple of days ago that the National Security Advisor and other people said, oh, no, we had briefed him several times on this. He was aware. So then, you know, this is where, like, the, the difficulties start to sort of come out is like, okay, well, what did he know? When did he know it? Why did he lie about not knowing it? And what exactly are we looking at here, right? That's the thing. At the end of the day, you know, the truth will set you free. Transparency is always great. And I'm a big believer in this, not in the context necessarily of the surveillance state, but I'm saying from a political perspective, if you've got nothing to hide, open it up. It will yeah. exonerate you. The easiest way to get any, in any time, you know, you're facing a scandal and you're maintaining that you did nothing wrong. The easiest way to prove that and to instill immediate confidence in people that what you're telling is the truth is to say, you're absolutely right. Open up the books, get that independent inquiry in there, go through anything. I knew nothing. And if this inquiry finds that anybody did know something and I was not made aware of it, we're going to deal with them in the appropriate manner. But that's not what they're doing. They're acting exactly the way you would expect someone to behave if they were guilty. Yeah. And, and it really strikes me as odd because it's just, it really could be that simple. Just saying, hey, maybe this happened. Maybe, maybe it didn't. Maybe this is a nothing burger or maybe there's nothing more to it, but we owe it to Canadians to get to the bottom of this. And yet there, there's a huge accountability gap. I mean, the fact that you've just highlighted the prime minister said he wasn't briefed and now it has been discovered that he was. It's like, I don't understand how that that in and of itself isn't this, the front page news story where it's like, well, okay, the prime minister lied. Why did he, why would he lie about that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just makes me scratch my head, but we have about uh, two and a half minutes here um, before the end of this segment. What do you think we can do to better insulate or protect our democracy from these attempts of foreign interference from the Chinese Communist Party or otherwise? Oh, that's a great question. Um, that, that is the question. Yeah, it might be might be worthy of another show. Yeah, exactly. I, I think really what, what it comes down to is, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that the first thing at the very least that we need to do is we need to start talking about it in an open manner. Mm -hmm. And you talk to any political organizer worth anything from the last 10, 15, 20 years, this stuff's not new. No. Not just from the, the from, from Beijing. I mean, the money stuff and, and the elite capture is relatively new, but I'm saying the sort of leveraging diaspora groups for specific political outcomes. And by the way, sometimes through threatening family members back at home, et cetera, et cetera. Like we heard, uh, Yesterday, I believe there was a a member, a leader in the Uyghur community, the Uyghur Canadian community basically said that a Chinese official called his house and basically said, your sisters are dead. Mm -hmm. That kind of intimidation. Um, we need to talk about it. 
We need to address this. Hold on. And we need, yes, some people, there will be some people who in the process of this conversation use it as an opportunity to spread racism against specific demographics. That's going to be a part of it. We have to, but we have to have confidence as a country that we can deal with that while still also addressing the elephant in the room that people really don't seem to want to address. But at the end of the day, in a healthy democracy, if we want to stay a healthy democracy, these conversations need to happen. And uh, it looks like they're going to happen whether we like it or not. So, Well, Anthony, it's been a pleasure. Where can listeners uh, learn a little bit more about what you have to say about things? <laughs> well, you can watch me on Power and Politics every Tuesday night, but you can also follow me on Twitter, which is probably where uh, I have the most fun. That's where, all, Yeah, that's where all the good stuff is. <laughs> Anthony takes on True and On. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Really appreciate it. And we will have you back on the program soon. Sounds good. Thank you for having me.